cut that out. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm cutting I sh- that. I should keep, uh, I should be uh, more PG-13. <laughs> or PG, so... Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and I'm just another lonely gatekeeper searching for a key master, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Well, I'm co-host Jeremy, and I just wanted to let you guys know, rocking on makes me feel good. Oh, yeah. Just saying. Combining different parts of the career yeah. of the featured artist. Yeah. Fantastic, Jeremy. I am co-host Peter Cook. But for this episode, I would prefer to be called Dr. Peter Venkman. <laughs> Deal. <laughs> <laughs> and I am Ike Turner, and I need you to know, when you're going through school and love, uh, don't uh, call me. <laughs> <laughs> I had a, at one point I had considered trying to combine all of the like three songs in a row on the album that we're talking about today that have love in the title into like a big amalgamation, but I, I didn't go there. I went the easier route. I'm glad I didn't. So then you could at least play on that. There you go. Yeah. Welcome. Teacher, yeah. Welcome back, Ike. Oh, thank you guys. Thank you so much. A really super awesome to be, to be here. I really appreciate it. I had a blast last time. I think it's gonna be a little different this time. Yeah. <laughs> You were on talking about new shoes before. Yep, yep. We had a great time with that episode. You were brave enough to reach out to new shoes and have them listen to and love the episode. Yeah, they were so cool. <laughs> they wrote back and John Smith, yeah, wrote back. Actually, they both did at one point, but it was, yeah, it was very, very sweet. And they were like, uh, you got a couple things wrong, but this is the best history of our band we've heard. And I was like, oh, wow, that's really sweet. So, yeah, it was cool. So, yeah, it sounded like they had maybe listened to it more than once even. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. glad we can do that. And yeah. who who are you here to talk about today, though? Oh, here, we're here to talk about a radio or Ray Parker Jr. record that we have here. It's called Rock On. And uh, pretty excited to talk about it. It's a, It definitely is a mood record, if you ask me, a, vi- a vibe album, as my kid would say. And um, yeah, stoked to talk about it. Sweet. What? Uh, let's play a song so they can, in case they have never heard Ray Parker Jr. before. <laughs> That's impossible. <laughs> yeah. We should probably start with Hot Stuff, right, Sean? Let's do that. Side A, track two, Hot Stuff. Probably my favorite of the more like up-tempo dance numbers on this record. I've played this one out a few times at DJ gigs, and it wasn't a hit, but uh, people love it on the dance floor still. Not to be confused with the Donna Summer song, Hot Stuff. True. Oh, 
It is impossible not to dance during that. Can confirm. Jeremy, Ike, and I are all in the same room, and we were getting down here. It was a <laughs> dance party. Yeah. That's true. My dog Socrates even joined in. True. Dancing. <laughs> Sean, were you dancing? Yeah, it's an undeniable groove, and I'm a little surprised they didn't pick that one as one of the singles for this album. It seems like it has hit potential, but what do I know? Yeah, you've only listened to like 25,000 records. What do you know, Sean? (laughs) (laughs) True. So, we're going to talk about the great Ray Parker Jr., a musician who's got to be one of the most underrated musicians. I mean, everyone knows this guy's name for an obvious association, you know. He wrote the Ghostbusters theme, in case you weren't aware. And performed um, it. And performed it, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and Bustin makes him feel good, you know? He's that guy. But the reality is that Ray Parker Jr. is so much more of an important musician than just being a kind of goofy 80s one-hit wonder. In fact, he's been the man behind the hits for a long time before the Ghostbusters theme song. And in fact, he was considered by many of his peers to be the greatest rhythm guitarist of all time. Jeez. Yeah, he's got those like funky, choppy guitar things he does that sound almost computerized because they're just so on. Yeah, like Nout Rogers. That dude's dude's right hand is unbelievable, you know, so totally agree. That's a good comparison, actually, even though they're very distinct between each other. But yeah, as far as influential, very singular players, Mm -hmm. yeah, Mm -hmm. Nile Rodgers is a a good comparison. Yeah, they both kind of helped define the R&B sound of the mid to late 70s in a lot of ways. That super syncopated, funky rhythm is exactly what was needed for the whole disco movement perfect transition out of the 60s soul sound into what we would associate with disco and post-disco and the more like well-produced smooth music that was happening i'm glad we're finally here we've mentioned ray parker jr many times on the podcast these past few years going i think maybe the first time was on our bohannon episode which was just a few episodes in and we're here to finally do justice to the man. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's been long overdue. I think we've had two records we've done on the show before that Ray has actually played on. And then yeah, he's been name dropped a handful of times. This has been on the list for quite a while. Yeah. And it's so wild to me to think just we're looking back through the lens of history and stuff. The dude is born like a year after my mom and dad. Right. <laughs> you know, like he's he's I think he's 68 years old right now. My mom and dad both are 69 years old. And you know, so this is, if you just even kind of do the math in your head, he is so young when he is doing a whole bunch of things, right? Like, you mean the thing we're talking about right now, what is he, 23 or 24 when he made this record? Maybe a little bit older? Just, it's really, really, really wild how young this dude is when he starts getting involved in session playing with Motown, playing with Stevie Wonder. I mean, we'll get into all that, I'm sure, but it's it's pretty wild. Yeah, he was this hardened veteran by the time he did the Ghostbusters theme at the age of 30. That's <laughs> yeah, wild. Yeah. Yep. If you guys don't mind, I can actually dive into some of the early years of the bio right now. Let's get started. He's, he did a lot, so there's a fair amount of ground to cover here in the Ray Parker Jr. story. Get to it. All right. Ray <laughs> Parker Jr. was born May 1st, 1954 in Detroit, Michigan. Hell yeah. Uh, that's right. Michigan, Michigan. representative. It hustles harder. Truth. That's what I'm told. So he grew up in the Detroit area at like just the perfect time to become a musician. You know, as he's like hitting 10 years old and starting to become aware of the music around him, that's at the height of early Motown fame when they're still in Detroit and just completely taking over the airwaves in a lot of ways. So in 1960, at the age of six, he started learning music in school. He picked up the clarinet. He gives a lot of credit to his grade school music teacher, Alfred T. Kirby, who was a big early influence on him and encouraged him to pursue a career in music. And at the age of 10, he's watching TV and he sees a band called the Love and Spoonfill come on and 
for some reason that just clicked with him, especially the electric guitar playing. And he just became obsessed with the idea of becoming a guitar player and gets his own electric. And shortly after that forms his first band called the Stingrays, featuring his childhood friends Sylvester Rivers and Ollie Brown, who will mention both of them later on. When he is 12 years old, he breaks his foot, kind of breaks his whole leg in a pretty severe bicycle accident. He said he was riding down the road, sticking his foot out, and it clipped the curb and twisted his foot back. And he had like a cast that went from his foot all the way up to his waist for over a year. Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis type thing. The cast where he had to learn to play piano wearing a cast and sits weird doing it. That's part of the reason... That yeah, he has such a unique... Weird style, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, there's a long, interesting history of artists being bedridden or not able to do things and just turning to art instead. And, you know, Frida Kahlo would be another example outside mm. of the music world. Yeah. But yeah, so he's at home, can't go out running around for, he said, like almost a year and a half with this full cast on, so he decides to use that time to get some serious guitar practice in. And he said he practiced a minimum of 12 hours a day, every day while he was <laughs> stuck at home. So he's, he's, you know, he comes out of this three years into being a guitar player. He's 13 years old and he's already just leveled up so hard that when he starts getting into the music scene at age 13, he's just immediately turning heads. He even auditioned for the spinners at age 13 and played a handful of gigs with them. Wild. That's great. Was yeah. he a cast was he a cast tech kid too? Do you know? I'm not sure. I didn't write down the names of the, the schools. The schools that, he went that to. Cast Tech in Detroit was that really it was like a, a, a clearinghouse for all of the big names that came out of Motown, but I don't know how many came out of them in the sixties, you know, the sort of the next generation. So but it was and it really wasn't it's not too far from Hitsville too, that Cast Tech High School. They apparently just had this ungodly uh, music director there who who really churned people out of, you know, really high quality. So, Yeah, it's always interesting to think about. There's, It seems like a lot of times in these famous music scenes like Detroit in the 60s, you know, there's labels that you can point to and there's, you know, things in society and just like the general shifts of population that can contribute to these music scenes. But sometimes it's also a handful of like really dedicated teachers that are just inspiring a whole generation of kids in these places. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, Kendrick Lamar talks about that in South Central Los Angeles. Like, if it wasn't for this music teacher, I don't know what I'd be doing. You know, one of those kind of things, you know. Yeah. So another big thing that happens at age 13, this is the summer of 1967. Do you guys know what happened in Detroit in the summer of 1967? Brutal, yeah. Uprising. Yep. Yes. On July 23rd, riots broke out in Detroit for about a week. Um, They're remembered as one of the most violent and bloody uprisings in U.S. history. Something like 50 people were killed and like 1,200 were injured or more than that. It was, yeah, it was a brutal time. And Ray is a 13-year-old kid still going to school in the middle of all of this. And he remembered in the documentary and talked about how during the riots, one of the days he's walking home from school and just gets jumped by a group of police officers who drag him into an alley and nearly beat him to death. Thankfully, a neighbor happened to come out to do laundry in the middle of this, saw him, and was able to intervene and get the cops off of him before it was too late but a severely traumatic experience for a young ray parker to put it mildly which documentary was it that you watched uh for research for this because it sounded like there was a lot of stuff in there that you aren't going to find in other articles about him true so that is the recently released ray parker jr documentary who you gonna call (laughs) which was honestly pretty good. I've watched a lot of terrible documentaries in research for episodes over the years, and I would give that one at least a B plus. Oh, excellent. (laughs) That uprising too, I'm sure, you know, this isn't Detroit history class. (laughs) (laughs) But But, you know, (laughs) Vietnam vet comes home, man, and he wanted to get a drink at a, a bar called a blind pig, you know, those, or after hours type thing. And that's where it started. You know, like it was, it 
it's just the inconsistency in ideology, you know, like even going going as far back as you possibly can uh, in America, at least. But then even in 1967, I mean, a dude came home from Vietnam serving two tours and then poof, this is it. So really nuts. I did look it up and Parker attended Cass Technical High School in the 10th grade. Wow. Oh, great. <laughs> oh, well, that's good to know. Yeah. Yeah. So carry on, Sean. <laughs> So as I said, this was a severely traumatic experience for Ray. He said that after this happened, he pretty much dropped out of all after-school activities, sports, etc., and decided to just once again stay home and practice guitar every day. You know, the thing I kept thinking about in reading this story and doing the research is that, yes, Ray has and had an undeniable talent and drive for music, but it wasn't just that, you know, it was also the pivotal years of him coming up. Music was like the only thing that made sense to him in some very troubled times. One of the quotes from the documentary was him saying that during this time when he was staying home and practicing to like stay safe, basically, was he knew that guitar would be the only way out of this craziness. And he just kind of viewed like getting good at music as his only real lifeline yeah. at that point. Either you can rock or you got a wicked jump shot. <laughs> In many of those cases, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's the heaviest part of the bio. So let's go ahead and jump back into another song, and then we'll we'll get into some more of the success that came for Ray just after this. Next track we're going to hear is You Can't Change That. This is uh, the only real hit off of the record. It went to number three in the R&B charts and number nine in the pop charts. Also, I want to note that Ray is not the only one doing lead vocals on here. He's got the, the more lower-pitched vocals, and then member Arnell Carmichael is the one doing the hook and the kind of higher-pitched vocal elements of this song. So here we go. This is side A, track three. <laughs> different opinions on whether hot stuff sounds like a single or not but that one definitely does it makes sense that that was a hit it's such a catchy song so funky undeniably catchy absolutely yeah i found out when i checked out this album that i was aware of more than one ray parker jr song yeah (laughs) i knew that song (laughs) that's i have heard that song playing at a grocery store uh, that I that I shop at all the time, and it was like, I, so I mean, it, it was really interesting. It was like, oh well, that now that makes sense, you know. Yeah. It was like one of those kind of things that sort of came together. I didn't know who sang that song before listening mm-hmm. to this record. So, radio, yeah, it, you know, it's got that good mix of the the hard funk and the smooth sound that we've talked about recently. You know, thinking about like Heat Wave, 
or slave bands like that. He, Ray was one of those guys that could just nail that combination really well. Yeah, there's definitely some the D- Detroit influences all over that chorus, mm-hmm. especially. Oh. Mm-hmm. 100%. <laughs> so before we dive more into this bio, I'm curious what everybody's like history with radio was. Anybody listen to this record much before doing this episode? Or do you know much about Ray aside from the obvious? You showed this to me a few years back, Sean. All of my DJ gigs I've ever done were just ones where Sean was doing a DJ gig and he like sends me a text like, hey, you want to come spin while I'm doing this? <laughs> and I like show up with some records and it was one of those. And I think Sean and I got in a competition of like who is going to play like the dancier jam and Sean busted out this record and he won. And this was also (laughs) my like first exposure to this record. And I like, I hadn't even connected Ray Parker Jr. Ghostbusters. Like I just knew the Ghostbusters Mm -hmm. song. So yeah. Yeah. You introduced it to me. Years back during that uh, dance-off competition, Sean. Oh, my God. <laughs> Love that. This this just happened just now. It just occurred to me that the spelling of radio is a play on Ray Parker's name. <laughs> 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 so that, oh, that shows God. how much thought I put into this previously. I, yeah, I, you know, I knew the song that we just listened to, and I knew the Ghostbusters theme. I didn't know there was even a connection b- between those two songs. I've you know I've long known that Ray Parker Jr. did a lot more than Ghostbusters and played on a ton of records <laughs> as a sideman, but yeah, I don't have a whole lot of history with him. I, it's I've really enjoyed this record listening to it three or four times the past couple days though. Yeah, I had a I mean with the record itself, no, I haven't. Not very familiar. I think whatever when we started talking about this a little while ago, I, I listened to it a few times and and very much enjoy it. But with him himself, yeah, he, I do a little. I do a little something in a class I teach, the history of rock and roll, where I will show a clip that I'm assuming Sean will talk about here, which is Stevie Wonder playing on Sesame Street. And it is a ripping version of Superstition. And I will, you know, like point to a person playing guitar and I'll ask the students, like, do you guys know who this is? You know, and, uh, you know, I recognize him because I'm old. (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, my job is to teach history, rock and roll. But so and then and, and then I'll immediately queue up, you know, Ghostbusters theme. So I was like, it's the same person, but about half a decade apart or what, you know, or, or a decade apart. <laughs> and that's still relevant yep. to students now. Like the Ghostbusters theme is still the Ghostbusters theme song. Yes. Zero percent of people have ever been able to identify him. So I, yeah. I, I don't and I don't want to be one of those kind of like, do you guys know? Like, I don't I don't like yeah. that, you know, but it's just really trippy to see such a young person playing and it's in the clip if i'm remembering it right it's three guitar players in a row and they're all playing something different mm. like they're all playing distinct parts and when you listen to the record you're like oh yeah there's three weird little things going on there so that and then as, as you guys have noted too and and i know sean will go into is just a uh, one of the what, many of the long storied side players and session musicians and live musicians in the motown tradition there's one really, really, really weird one that's an interesting story, and that's the story of Tommy Chong, who was a guitar player from Motown, Tamla Motown, for a little bit, claims to be the person who actually discovered the Jackson 5, Michael Jackson and the Jackson 5, like, and like has the story about seeing them play where they're playing this big review in Chicago, running out to pay phone and being like, almost like uh, Back to the Future. Like, <laughs> you gotta you know, hear this. Yeah, my cousin Chuck, you, you know. You said Tommy Chong? Tommy Chong. Like Cheech and Chong? Absolutely. <laughs> hey, man. Absolutely. He came from, was a British Columbia or Vancouver, came into the United States. He had, like, at one point, I think two like marriages going at the same time. Like he has a pretty gnarly those, history. Both those guys have interesting backgrounds. I know Cheech Marin was Karen Dalton's roommate at one point. Yeah. Which is nuts. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> dodged a bullet there, <laughs> maybe literally, but there there's a bunch of stuff with that. And then Tommy Chong, like, Oh, and then, you know, Motown signs Jackson five and the first press release is like discovered by Diana Ross. Uh, <laughs> So he's always been like slightly bitter. So there's always real, there's this long tradition of pretty interesting people who are playing with Motown, you know? And I mean, I recently just read about uh, Carol Kay 
and her dispute over whether she played on all these Motown hits or James Jamerson. Like it's oh, really? a dark well, story. She, she's from the Wrecking Crew, right? Yeah, yeah, but she claims to have been flown to Detroit to have played all these things, you know, like wow. or or Purdy, you know, from Purdy Shuffle, he's just like, yeah, that's not Ringo and all those Beatles songs. Yeah. That's me. You know, like that. <laughs> We've, we mentioned that fairly recently. Yeah, yeah that, yep. that whole dispute. Yep, so. Yeah, and Motown has a history of not treating their artists very well, especially when it comes to getting them paid or getting yeah. them royalties or getting their names on the songs that they're actually a part of so that these musicians wouldn't get paid any royalties for the work. I think you should probably point out that that was kind of par for the course in record label world, though. It is par for the course, but Motown had a specific reputation, especially amongst black artists. It was kind of known like, yes, if you were a nobody, Motown would get you the exposure. But if you were an artist that had a career at all, no one wanted to move to Motown. That was not a place where established artists went because you were going to get screwed and probably paid worse than the white labels. I've heard many artists express this opinion, even like uh, Maurice White from Earth, Wind & Fire specifically did not audition for Motown when he was getting the band going. Going back to what you said about the three guitar players playing with Stevie, though, you know, oftentimes when we think about guitar gods, so to speak, it's these, you know, typically rock guys who can just shred these gnarly solos and do these impressive, flashy things. But there's this whole other world of guitar playing, especially in the studio musician world, and even more so in the soul, R&B, funk world. If you were a good rhythm player, it was much more valuable than anything else, because you needed to be able to fit a simple guitar line into a kind of busy song without making it feel crowded. And you wanted to be able to kind of glue all these different elements together. And that specifically was what what made Ray Parker such an in-demand session musician throughout the years and why he was getting sought out by huge music names as a young teenager. So let's dive back into this bio then. So Ray is about 13, 14 years old, and he's trying to get out and gig wherever he possibly can. And he's soon noticed by Hamilton Bohannon. You know I'm going to put reverb on that, Peter. I wouldn't have it any any other way. So Bohannon approached him after seeing him in a gig and immediately offers him a job and asks him if he thinks he can hang with the big boys. Ray joins Bohannon's house band at the 20 Grand Club in Detroit, which is a pretty infamous club oh, yeah. and a high-profile gig to get for sure. His The first show he plays in Bohannon's band, he is the one of the backup players for Gladys Knight and an early I Want to Testify era parliament. Wow. How old was he right then? 14. What? (laughs) My God. Yeah, it's absurd. Couldn't even brush my teeth properly at 14. (laughs) I got my first guitar at 15. Same. Oh, wow. Yeah. So through this Bohannon connection, Ray meets and begins working with many early Motown stars. In fact, in 1969, he gets a call to do some session work with Marvin Gaye, which starts a a pretty long association with Marvin throughout his career. He's on a bunch of Marvin records. Mm -hmm. And as we were saying, uh, Ray claims that he's on actually a great deal of Motown work in the late 60s, although he's not officially credited for pretty much any of it. Like you, You don't find his early credits on Discogs for a lot of the work he was doing, but... If we're to believe Ray, which even if he's like half lying, he's still on so many more records than you could probably even really imagine or understand. Yeah, and I don't really know why he would lie about it either. It's like, you know, I'm on a lot of records. I'm on more than you thought. That I get zero money for? Yeah. Yeah. I also want to note that Ray just had a lot of great things to say about Bohannon. Apparently he was super nice and kind of was like almost like a second father to him in a way he said when he was trying to convince ray's mother to let him join his band he went over to her house and promised her there would be no alcohol there would be no drugs and bohannon even went so far as to like pick up and drop off ray from his parents house every day if his parents couldn't drive him (laughs) that puts it in like that just draws this picture in my mind of this kid yeah going absolutely 
Bohannon and like Parliament. <laughs> like what? Yeah. Booker T had a similar vibe, man. He was really young when he starts playing, you know, with the Stax dudes. It's very it's similar. Yeah. It's like yeah, I think I think his mother was a music teacher and he had to get permission from somebody and they they kind of treated him like a you know like I mean he was Booker T. He could play anything. He was just incredible. But yeah, it's pretty. Pretty, pretty similar. I think it was. I think it happened once in a while. We'd see this little wunderkind come through, and like, whoa, what is that? And it still always shocks me when I think of like, well, how old is Booker T? And I look his age up, and he's way younger than I think he is. Yeah. <laughs> he's like by a decade, you know. So, yeah, yeah he's been a lot around as long as he has. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The Stax records are coming out in sixty, well, fifty nine, but then he starts playing them on in sixty one or whatever. So. Yeah. Not to get too far into the weeds, but Maurice White, who we've already mentioned, was childhood best friends with Booker T. They like grew oh. up in the same neighborhood playing music together and stuff. And Maurice White, his mom moved him to Chicago kind of a little bit against his will. So it's very likely that, that if that hadn't happened, he would have been working at Stax with Booker T instead of working oh. at Chess Records in Chicago. And we might not have gotten Earth, Wind & Fire. I mean, something would have happened still. It would have looked different, but like guys like that, there's no stopping them. This is the sliding doors thing. Here, here we are, or a uh, man in the high castle. Yeah. <laughs> we don't get Earth, Wind, and Fire, and then we don't get porno music because that's Earth, Wind, and Fire. They're like, you know, credited with doing, with like inventing pornography music in the 1970s because they got like, uh, the story goes, they got, they got flown, <laughs> they got flown out to LA. And they're like, we could give you soundtrack work. We're going to pay you a lot. And they're like, great. Check cleared. Let's go. They get out there and they were like, we want this kind of, you know, kind of sexy music, you know, a lot of wah pedal. And then they were like, what? You know, like they're recording. They're literally like recording and stuff. And they're like, what is this movie? I don't know what movie this is. And some producer dude comes in. And he's like, oh, this is pornography. with porn. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that's sort of like, wow, 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 wow. You can put that right on Earth, Wind & Fire. So Yeah. Then Bush doesn't get elected. 9-11 doesn't happen. Andrea Dorkin gets her way. <laughs> So where, for the true heads out there. <laughs> so where were you at, Sean? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, we mentioned his his early band, the Stingrays. Uh, both members of that band also went into the music industry, and one of them, Sylvester Rivers, who we mentioned, had gotten a job working for Invictus Hot Wax Records, and after a little while, he's able to get Ray an audition at the label. For those who are not familiar, Invictus and Hot Wax was a group of Detroit labels founded by the songwriting team Holland Dozier Holland, who had left Motown in 1969 over royalty disputes. No. (laughs) (laughs) So he gets an audition session working with them, and he said that he knew he was in when they kept asking him to do overdubs, and by the time he'd done like four different overdub guitar parts, he was like, man, if they didn't like me, they would have kicked me out by now. I'm in. (laughs) So he's hired as the house guitarist and claims to have performed on the majority of the label's records. That includes bands like Honeycone, Frida Payne, Laura Lee, 100 Proof Aged in Soul, and Chairman of the Board. So this is the early 70s, and he's just laying down tons of funky Detroit-style hits, often uncredited, (laughs) again. And like 16, 17 years old. Yep. Yep. Incredible. (laughs) All right, so this is a good story. In 1972, Ray gets a call from Stevie Wonder. At this point, uh, Stevie's album Music of My Mind is Ray's favorite album of all time. He listens to it all the time, and he just kind of assumed that his friends were pranking him because they know he's so obsessed with Stevie's music, and he hangs up the phone. Yeah, Uh, so he hangs up the phone on Stevie Wonder. (laughs) Yeah, Stevie calls him back a few more times. Ray keeps hanging up on him. Ray's getting pissed. He's, like, cussing out Stevie Wonder on the phone thinking he's just somebody who's annoying him and then he picks up the phone again and he hears hey this is stevie it's not a joke and if you hang up on me again you're gonna get punched out i know people in detroit too (laughs) nice wow and then stevie proceeded to play over the phone the opening bars to superstition and ray just immediately was like oh my god i hung up the phone on stevie wonder multiple times (laughs) oh my Despite all this, Stevie hires him without even an audition. He just knows he's that good. And also, Bo Hannon had been hyping him up to Stevie the whole time. So he's hired without an audition. Immediately gets flown out to the studio to record some tracks for Talking Book. 
does the Sesame Street session that you mentioned and then hits the road opening up for the Rolling Stones. With he's Stevie eight, Wonder. He's 18. Yeah. Playing with Stevie Wonder, playing with the Rolling Stones at age 18. Strapped to a rocket. In 1972, also, that's the Exile on Main Street tour. Oh, yeah. yeah. Wow. You're yeah. right. That, it would uh, be right in that yeah. time frame. The, I can't say the word. The the old film, Pennebaker film, Sea Sucker Blues. Cocksucker Blues. <laughs> <laughs> Peter said it. I didn't Toilet say it. Toilet mouth, Peter. <laughs> Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a fun. That's the that documentary is the sallow of rock documentaries. <laughs> <laughs> that is its notoriety. Yeah. yeah. So Ray has said that Stevie Wonder was a massively important mentor to him at this point. Stevie literally taught him how to be a songwriter, how to properly arrange music, and gave him also some incredibly valuable tips on how to succeed in the music business and you know how to just kind of work the business angle of things, get your name on the label more often, get those residuals, etc. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a good thing. He didn't hang up again on Stevie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that also would have led to Bush not getting elected in no nine 11. <laughs> the webs we weave. So Ray's only in Stevie's band for about a year, which is apparently uh, Stevie's like, maybe even still a little mad about that. Cause I guess Stevie's approach is if he hires you for his band, it's like getting hired into his family and he wants people to stay in his band for as long as possible. He's got guys that have been with him for 45 years or more. So Ray's only in the group for a year and then informs him that he wants to leave so he can move to the West coast and start working on a solo career and try and become famous. Yeah. I don't, Ray's obviously ready to, take on the world at this point he's like 18 19 years old he's been at it for five six years professionally yeah like a jackson yeah. brown thing you know like yeah. 16 when he's helping nico out or something you know yeah and with the amount of success that he's already had at this point you know why would you settle it's like you you know that you're a talent <laughs> people want what you've got so you know take it as far as you can so ray moves to the west coast he said that he would just like set up a guitar and amp outside of studios and wait for people to show up and then like block the door and make them listen to his songs to try and get jobs. <laughs> just, <laughs> just intensely persistent stuff. But the thing is he's so freaking talented that most of the time these people are like annoyed and then they hear him play and they're like, actually wait a minute, come on inside. <laughs> like, <laughs> we can use this. So his first big connection in the West Coast is getting to meet the producer Gene Page, who's a pretty legendary arranger and producer in the music business. And Gene is able to get him quite a bit of work. Most importantly, introduces him to a guy named Barry White. Oh, here we go. In fact, Ray was in the studio on the infamous day when they recorded You're the First, the Last, My Everything, Can't Get Enough of Your Love, Babe, and love theme all in a single session. That's a Dolly Parton type day there, man. Holy yeah. cow. <laughs> Just massive hits all yep. all in one day and raised there as, you know, a not insignificant part in the creation of this music. So from there, as you can imagine, Ray just quickly becomes one of the most in-demand session musicians on the West Coast. Over the next five years, you can find him playing on over 150 different records. And this is all before radio releases their first album in 1978. Yeah, Union Scale was really good back then. Like that, those people were often times, like that was the sort of secret for them was like, nah, we're making more money than the actual rock stars because managers aren't taking our cut. And, you know, if you need me here an hour longer, that's going to be three times the amount of money. Like that's that's very, very good money that he's making. Yeah. And a lot of the times you're getting residuals off these album sales too. And then, you know, he's starting to get some songwriting credit here and there too, and some production credit. So he's, he's doing pretty well for himself at this point. A short list of the musicians he worked with during these years includes Stanley Turrentine, Lou Rawls, Freddie Hubbard, Bill Withers, Aretha Franklin, Leon Haywood, Herbie Hancock, The Blackbirds, The Carpenters, Boz Skaggs, Aquarian Dream, and many more. Hot list. 
very Hot much so. list. And I then, thought he played um, on a Jean-Luc Ponty record too at one point. I remember reading that in some liner notes. That could be I could be wrong, but it's an entirely possible. Like I said, yeah. it's a huge list of stuff he's officially credited for, and you know, who knows how much other stuff he was on that has just been kind of lost in the details. I just ran my finger along the spine of one of the shelves of, of Jeremy's here, and I bet you I touched an album that Ray Parker Jr. is on. <laughs> probably <laughs> touched a couple of them. <laughs> yeah. The, the two albums we featured before that Ray was on was Michael Henderson's Going Places, R.I.P. Michael Henderson. We just lost him a few days ago at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And then he, of course, also played on Cheryl Lynn's self-titled album. Oh, wow. As I said, he's coming up as a songwriter during this time as well. A few of the hits that he wrote for other people include one of the first big hits for Rufus and Shaka Khan, You Got the Love, in 1974. That was all Ray Parker Jr. He also wrote a a big hit for Barry White called You See the Trouble With Me from 1976. He co-wrote the song Doing It with Herbie Hancock on his Secrets album in 1976. Ray had a good story for when he got called in to work with Herbie. It was like the first serious jazz musician he was working with. And he thought he was going to be kind of out of his element. He's trying to work on his jazz chops. He's like, this is so many more notes than I'm used to playing. <laughs> he, he gets there hoping he can, you know, hang with the serious jazz guys. And Herbie's like, I don't want you to play all those notes. Like when I make a jazz record, I hire jazz musicians. I'm hiring you for the rhythm. I knew who I was getting when I asked <laughs> yeah, for Ray exactly. Parker Jr. <laughs> <laughs> he was also the uncredited writer of Leo Sayer's biggest hit, You Make Me Feel Like Dancing. Oh, wow. He was in the studio. The band was trying to work on music. It wasn't happening. Ray just is like giving him some tips, shows him how to play this song, and before he knows it, it's a Grammy-winning like multi-million selling hit that he got zero credit or money for yeah and you, you probably have to think with how much he was doing he probably didn't think anything of it at the time it was probably like yeah, just tuesday yeah 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 he said that was the the big wake-up call for him because you know in some ways to him it's just playing these simple little funky guitar lines it's what he does all day long but the reality is he's got an amazing talent that's highly in demand and is successful at that point so he he said that was a wake-up call that made him become a lot more careful about who he showed what and like how much he gave away for free. Like, really kind of understood his value at that point and tried to protect it as much as he could. It's not to jump ahead, or you know, this is stating something that most people know, but it's interesting that then he got sued for his biggest hit, replicating yeah. another song, Huey Lewis, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want a new drug. Was that the one that the they said he plagiarized? Yeah, yeah. Is Man, that, yeah. it's there's only you know it's rock and roll. What are there twelve notes? Like, come on! <laughs> yeah. And you're only supposed to play seven of them. Yeah, yeah. come on, yeah. Like, stay away from B. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I never. You know what? I've never. That one doesn't seem to hold water to me, and I don't remember how the court case shook out. I'm sorry, but I, that one just seems so spurious to me. So yeah, yeah agreed. Well, you guys want to hear another song? Yes, please. Also, yes, please. All right. We're going for a little smoother one this time. This is one of my favorite tracks on the record, More Than One Way to Love a Woman.
Yeah, when I was checking this album out for the first time a few days ago, I had to, I was listening on my phone and doing dishes, and I had to, when that intro kicked in and it sounded like, yeah, like Jethro Tull or yeah. some folky prog, I, I was like, wait, did it? Did the album end? Uh, did, is this just going off somewhere else? Oh, no, this is still radio, still Ray Parker Jr. And then, you know, then it gets into the song and, it's kind of gets into more like Shuggy Otis, Brothers Johnson type yeah. territory. And what a, whew, what a track. What a fantastic song. I did too. I, I was like, it didn't, I mean, I, I knew where I was on the record, but I, I, I was like immediately for like, uh, Steve Howe, like fragile. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was this really, the, the intro was, you know, yeah, yeah, put me in that frame of finger mind. Finger picking and yeah. yeah. Oh. Acoustic. No, fantastic cut. And, uh, I don't know. I, I I mean I'm uh I'm convinced of this guy's talent, Sean. <laughs> Good. I'm I'm glad I could convince you at least. <laughs> it's I, all been I, worth I, it now. He's he's more than just Ghostbusters. <laughs> <laughs> Officially. You've heard it here first, folks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and one thing I wanted to point out, this is kinda easy to lose this many decades removed from the music but ray had a little bit of reputation as being kind of a progressive almost feminist songwriter in funk music i mean you think about how many funk songs are written by men from a very like male-centered perspective and are a little cringy and the fact that ray's you know writing these songs more than one way to love a woman or his big hit a woman needs love later on like it was a seemingly radical perspective shift from a male artist at the time you know, it must be those guys named Ray, Ray Davis, known for writing <laughs> feminist perspectives. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yep. Ray Parker Jr. Yeah. I don't know about Ray Charles. <laughs> <laughs> Billy Ray Cyrus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've cracked the code. Well, tell us about what, when is this record from? Okay, so we brought him up to 1978 radio forms they released their first self-titled record they had a big hit with the song jack and jill uh, they got signed to arista records by the way which means they were signed by clive davis mm-hmm. which I, i've got nothing bad to say about clive on this episode or at least in relation to ray parker as we've said before he's one of those guys that if you got on his bad side he was a monster and if you fit the mold of what he thought an artist should be, he could be your best friend. You know, yeah. as long as you kept having hits. <laughs> Music's zelig. He was everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely seemed to be the kind of guy where, you know, he supported a lot of black artists, but he seemed to specifically shy away from allowing black artists to have any kind of a controversial or political voice in their music. You can listen back to our Chambers Brothers episode for more perspective and information on that. But uh, in this story, Ray and Clive have remain good friends to this day, in fact. So that brings us to this record, Radio's second album, 1979, Rock On. After the first record, singer Jerry Knight and drummer Vincent Bonham both left, which I actually just realized that today. I kind of assumed that Jerry Knight was the other singer on this record, but it's not. It's Arnell Carmichael. Jerry Knight left to pursue a solo career after the first album and has some really, really good solo records. Keep an eye out for those. So they were both replaced by guys named Charles Fearing and Larry Tolbert. And Arnell Carmichael was the only one that was uh, an original member from the first record and also stayed on after this. And I believe has been doing shows performing radio material by himself, if I've heard correctly. So he's the keyboardist singer, and you can see him in some videos as well. The The live video for the single off this one, you can't change that. There's some really good footage of that online that you can find. Ray also called in some session work from his former childhood friends and Stingray's band members, Sylvester Rivers and Ollie Brown. You know, we kind of mentioned... They're back. Yeah. <laughs> we kind of mentioned that radio is more or less a Ray Parker Jr. solo project in a lot of ways. It really could have just been called that. People were kind of saying that 
In some settings, Ray was very confident. Apparently, if you played a session with him and you hadn't met him before, he would introduce himself as, I'm Ray Parker Jr., the greatest guitar player in the world. <laughs> <laughs> but on stage and his public persona, it was a bit of an adjustment to kind of get into the spotlight. And it's very possible that presenting this as a band was more because he just didn't quite feel comfortable going out as a solo artist at this point. But he did write and produce all of the songs on all of their records. And then by the third record, they were being billed as Ray Parker Jr. and Radio. By the fourth record, only Ray was the one on the cover image. And then after that, the band quote-unquote broke up and Ray officially embarked on his solo career. Going on to record Ghostbusters, produce, and play guitar with a bunch of other people. He also um, helped discover the band New Edition and did some production work for them later on. So this is a guy that has remained relevant and important for a very long time in the music industry. Yeah, he's still writing and recording today, right? Yeah, he's still out there. You know, he's not as uh, working as hard as he used to, maybe, or not on as many songs, but he's still active, in great shape, and just seems like a, a great guy. Real fun from all the impressions that I've gotten. Hmm. I watched a YouTube video that was like low rent MTV Cribs where he's just showing off his studio setup to some kind of studio dork guy. I apologize if <laughs> you're listening to the podcast. <laughs> Jeremy is a studio guy. dork guy himself. So. A bunch yeah. of white dudes with horn rim glasses just perked up. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, what? Yeah. <laughs> um, actually. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it looked like he's still like, you know, he built this great studio for himself in his house and he's still like uh, doing his thing. Yeah, I believe all the radio records and pretty much, you know, a lot of the stuff he worked on after this was all out of his home studio. Well, Sean, do you have any segments for us today? <laughs> I do have segments. I got a couple recommended albums and i also have a few all caps user reviews that i found on the internet oh here we go we, we gotta go we gotta do that first tradition demands it that we, we true we do the all caps user reviews first okay so we're gonna start off with um the only one that is actually all caps this is a five star review with the title great music through <laughs> <laughs> and it reads Ray Parker's first five albums were monsters. They were all put together well. Great music through and through. <laughs> Once again, through. I'm trying to like stay true to the uh, misspelling and punctuation and all of that. I'm just trying to capture the original vibe of these reviews. <laughs> I actually think that's the right vibe for reviewing this record. Yeah, if you're okay. not excited about this record, then why are you even talking about it, right? Yep, totally. <laughs> All right, so this next one doesn't actually have any caps, but I felt like it was a similar enough spirit to be read, so uh, I'll try and do it justice. I'm a 52-year-old white male hard rock lover. This can't get... <laughs> Sorry, let me start that over. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a 52-year-old white male hard rock lover. That can't get this song out of his head. Freaking love this song. Sure miss these days. What the hell happened to music? What I wouldn't <laughs> give back to be in the 70s and 80s. Wow. I like he's reviewing an album and he's just talking about one song. Yeah. I could throw You know I could throw this football over that mountain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, I got two more reviews for you. This this one's a short one. This is music. Beautiful. <laughs> Classic forever. That's it. That was a... Love it. I think that was a poem. Short and sweet, yeah. All right, last one. Uh, no caps in this one as well, so here we go. I turned 69 years old today. Yeah, that's right. Heard this mighty <laughs> fine tune upon arising from my slumber. I just got to finger popping floor splitting cartwheel tumbling and my feet never hit the floor a running yeah that's right show enough wow, uh, <laughs> that's a stoked person right there yeah this man yeah. is white if his uh, profile picture is being honest by the way 
Nice. Good find, Sean. God are the user him. reviews <laughs> for Radio's yeah. Rock On from 1979. Superb. Well, wonderful job. And uh, what do you have for recommended similar albums? So I got a couple 1979 albums that have some good similarities to this one. The first one is Confunctions Candy. That's a band I've been listening to a lot. They've got a bunch of just almost perfect funk records from this time period. Well worth checking out. Con Funk Shun. Yeah, three words. And then Bohannon's Cut Loose, which is the the one we featured on the show, right? Like 145 mm-hmm. episodes ago. Yeah, I believe that was episode four, if memory serves. Yeah. So that was what Bohannon was doing in 1979. Ray played on almost all the Bohannon records. Uh, he's credited for a lot of them, and I'm sure he probably got called in for stuff that he wasn't officially credited on either. The last one is not a dollar bin record, but it's well worth checking out. It's, it's only like a $25 record, so it's not too bad. But it's an artist by the name of Jeffrey, J-E-F-F-R-E-E. He had a self-titled record that he put out in 1979 that has got some definite Motown, Marvin Gaye vibes on it, but it's, it's a brilliant record, and there's actually a handful of radio artists who helped make that album, so check that one out. Excellent. Wonderful. Did I might have misheard you or spaced for a second there. Did you say that Ray Parker Jr. did play on Cut Loose? I'm not positive if he, if he played on Cut Loose specifically, but he played on a bunch of Bohannon records. They okay. stayed friends, you know, through Bohannon's entire life. I think he just passed away a year ago at this point. Gotcha. It had it put me in the frame of mind of this one christmas i had my grandmother gave me a commodore's tape and a maze tape for christmas Mm. now how my grandmother knew to to buy those i have no idea my suspicion is she went to the record store and said uh can i have two tapes for my son who's nine (laughs) you know but it was this maze record called can't stop the love that it, it for whatever reason maybe i'm just compartmentalizing them the same but it had a similar vibe and that maze record comes out a little later, comes out in 19, like 80, I was 85 when I was nine. Mm-hmm. And I know they have records before that and stuff, but that one, you know, was like, oh, th- these two could play back to back to back, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. Maze featuring Frankie Beverly. Yes, absolutely. One yeah. of the, one of the all time great lead singers, really. I would love to do a maze record on this show at some point. Oh, call you boy. If you do. <laughs> <laughs> I got now some opinions. I, now I know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There you go. See a season four appearance. Oh, again. Oh, people are going to, they're going to turn the dial <laughs> <laughs> on the radio. <laughs> well, uh, Ike, do you have anything that you would like to plug that you've, you know, coming up, you know, uh, or anything that you've been up to that you want to plug? Uh, boy, plug it. Well, two, you know what? Two things. I don't know when this airs, but. Uh, It'll be about two weeks from now. Okay. So you'll miss this thing that's happening next week. That is truly one of the most insane things I'll ever be involved with in my entire life. I am going to be serving as the role troll at this music festival in Minot, North Dakota. And I'm going to be helping out serving caramel rolls to people out at the Air Force Base and then at, uh, I think, unhoused folks and stuff like that. And I'm really excited and I have to dress like a troll to do it. So I'm pretty stoked on that. And that's, you know, going to take me back to North Dakota. And then, um, yeah, you know, a band I'm in called Wowzin Kalamazoo just put out a new album. Um, Yes, yeah, that is Worth checking out. That's on Bandcamp. And yeah. If you search Wowza, W-O-W-Z-A, in Kalamazoo. Yep. Yeah, that yeah. is a wild record. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. I'm really proud of that one. Yeah, that was one of those rare cases in my life where it was like, I we made this is we made the album we set out to make, you know, and it's about 70% of it is improv, improvisational, and I'm very, very proud of that. I love creating on the spot and... Yeah, I'm stoked on that one. So those two things, and then there's shows coming up, and you know everybody's always got a million plans. So, but those are the two that are stoking me out now. So, very cool. Well, you know, I'm sorry I won't get to witness this North Dakota roll thing. <laughs> I'm sure, there's going to be video footage. <laughs> but uh, yeah, definitely encourage listeners to check out 
Wowza and Kalamazoo, as well as Out, O-U-T. Thank you, yeah. Which you can find. Another um, band I play in here. I love Rockin' ass band. Oh, thank you. And uh, yeah, New Standardsman with former guest Bob Bucko Jr. Um, he and I are, we're like, we're like the Ray Parker Jr., and uh, <laughs> let me see if I can. And Jeff Picaro for New Standards Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jeff Picaro from Gardening T- Accident. Jeff Picaro, yeah. <laughs> from Toto. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's. Uh, I think Sean and I. Uh, I. I, I don't want to speak for you, Sean, but I, I think that doing the, this podcast, maybe Jeremy feels this way too. I have a whole new respect for Toto. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. definitely. <laughs> Ringers played on everything. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. you know, Ray was playing on a bunch of records with the Toto guys around oh, this yeah. time. You know, they're all West Coast session musicians, so they were you know in friendly competition at all times. Totally. Well, I feel like we have finally done Mr. Ray Parker Jr. a fraction of justice. We kind of glossed over the last. 30 years of his career <laughs> we only got an hour here yeah there you know th- this honestly probably could have been two episodes if we really wanted it to be there's more stories to be told the documentary is great there's tons of interviews some great stories from hit the 80s part of his career too but there's just there wasn't time and you know the main point here was to let people know how important he was way before ghostbusters even happened hard to believe but it's true it's true and you know <laughs> The thing that I think is cool is it would be so easy for Ray to get bitter about only being known as this kind of goofy one-hit wonder guy, but he just loves it. He loves the attention from the fans. He loves that people, you know, come up and talk to him all the time. He said he, like two or three times a month, will just go and hang out next to his star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame and just take pictures with fans and have a great time. That's cool. And he said he never gets tired of just random dudes walking up to him and just saying who you gonna call (laughs) i watched another youtube video of ray parker jr where it was like a ghostbusters convention from sometime in the past 10 years and he just ripped out like a 20 minute long like fish jam version of the (laughs) ghostbusters song he was just into it yeah he needs a miracle yeah that's pretty great Okay, I have just a couple real quick last notes, final thoughts before we sign off. But Ray's star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame is actually touching John Denver's. Oh. Interesting association. And uh, believe it or not, Ray is actually terrified of the dark. And by association, he is afraid of ghosts. (laughs) Interesting. He always sounded genuine on the song. I know. (laughs) Puts everything into question now, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, I suppose getting the, you know what, stomped out of you by a bunch of cops in 1967 uh, yeah. will do that to you. you yeah, know? yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some, you know, lingering effects from that that he's still carrying with him and be hard not to. Yeah. Okay. Final little note here. So Jerry Knight, who was on the first radio record that we mentioned, and Ollie Brown, the childhood friend and later associate, they went on to have a short-lived duo project called Jerry and Ollie, most notable for writing the theme song and performing the theme song to the movie Breakin' from 1983. Wow. Ooh, the the, the dance movie? Oh, yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I'm more of a Breakin' 2 electric boogaloo <laughs> person. I didn't know that about oh. you. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, that is. And that's all I've got. Go listen to some Ray Parker Jr. Get some radio albums. You know, look at the back of the records, and if you see Ray's name on it, it's it's going to be good. Just buy it. It's probably cheap, too. Yep. Thank you, Ike, for taking the time to... Out of you know, out of all your rocking and rolling, <laughs> sounds like emphasis on the rolling coming up here. A lot of rolling, yeah. <laughs> both, uh, both with caramel rolls and also my bike. So yeah. <laughs> Thank you, listeners. Thank you to our Patreon subscribers. You can get a lot more content if you go over to Patreon.com/slash I'd Buy That Podcast. Support us a little bit, and we got lots of bonus episodes, mixes, all kinds of content, and that about does it. My name is Peter Cook. Well, actually, my name is Peter Venkman. (laughs) (laughs) I'm co-host Jeremy. I'm co-host Sean. 
and I'm Ike Turner. The legendary. <laughs> Not that legendary one. The other one. <laughs> the other legendary Ike Turner. What are we going out on, the, Sean? The slightly less problematic legendary Ike Turner. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we're going out on the final track. Side two, track four. Honey, I'm a star. Without your love